Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're covering all of Swedish history one episode at a time. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 66, Margarete and the Pirates. And talking of covering all of Swedish history one episode at a time, we've just finished covering all of Swedish history up to about 1387 in just two episodes. Yes, that's right, because we've just finished our two recap episodes suggested by listener Mark. I hope that was of use to some listeners. We certainly felt it was a good way to recap and do a bit of a refresher and revisit all the great stories we've covered so far. But it also gave us a few extra weeks to research and plan the next few episodes. And that's been really helpful because, as we'll see, this is an extremely pivotal period of Swedish history. I know we say that quite often, <laughs> but this is really going to be the start of something huge. And it will all start with the lady we met in the last couple of chronological episodes, Margareta. And so we felt we would continue her story but also give you a bit of a background on her today. But before we jump into her story and the story of Sweden at the time, we need to do our Swedish phrase, which this week is inte ha ett rött öre. Translated to English, that means to not have a red öre. Öre is an old Swedish coin. These coins were made of copper, and since 1873, a hundred öre made up one krona, the main Swedish coin and currency unit. Uh, so because these coins were made of copper and were red, the phrase to not have a red öre, well, it means to not have any money. And these öre, even though they're kind of irrelevant, are still around today. Not in a physical form in terms of coins, but you will uh, they will appear on your receipts and things when you buy things online or with your card. So they do exist, uh, so it's good to know that they're around, but you won't find any of their coins anymore. And uh, just like other countries, an öre is like the cents or pence. They're the ones below the main unit of currency. And yeah, like I said, they're kind of worthless now. One kroner is nine cents in America and eight pence in the UK. So 50 euro, half a kroner is like four cents in America and 4p. And 10 euro would be half a cent and not even half a penny. So yeah, it really is pretty useless, especially when things in Sweden are more expensive <laughs> than in uh, the UK or America. Yeah, things are so expensive in the Nordic countries that we don't need a smaller kind of denominator of our coins we just have one coin unit exactly and so yeah to not have a red ura means to have no money which makes even more sense today when even if you did have a red ura it would be useless <laughs> indeed once you know what an ura is i suppose this phrase is quite obvious so now let's dive into where we left off last time uh, at least for a while to get some context as we'll soon head back in time to look at Margareta's life before this crucial junction we've reached. And this important junction was the death of her son Olof. Margareta would have woken up one day in 1387 after her son died and would have had to try and work out how things had gotten to this point. 
Perhaps she even logged on to a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com to look at the family trees we have there to remind herself of uh, what her situation looked like at this point. Well, that would have been helpful for her, no doubt, if she could do that. Especially considering that now there is a new family tree uploaded, especially for this episode, that Margareta would have needed to study to figure out why and how she got to where she is. Yeah, because the main problem is that there's not really anyone obvious left to take the throne in Denmark and Norway. And once she got online, she would have read and remembered that in the past 15 years, she'd witnessed the death of almost everyone around her. It started off with her father-in-law, King Magnus of Sweden, dying three years after being released from prison, and finally leaving us in 1374. His wife had died a decade before that, and his sister Euphemia had also died shortly before he was released from prison, so there was no reunion there either. This left his son, Horkon, claiming the throne in Sweden and ruling the west of the country in defiance of the de jure king, Albert, who was futilely claiming authority over all of the country. Soon afterwards, Sweden's ultimate enemy, frenemy, friend, King Valdemar of Denmark, also died. This meant that Valdemar's grandson, Ulof, son of King Helkon of Norway and, to a certain extent, Sweden, and Margarete, well, he took the throne of Denmark. Everyone not German in our story was probably glad when Duke Albert of Mecklenburg died in 1379, leaving his sons, Henry, Magnus and King Albert, as the leading Mecklenburg figures going forward. Just one year later, King Horkon left the scene, leaving the throne of Norway to his son, Olaf, who's now king of Norway and Denmark, whilst also claiming the Swedish crown. This young boy had a lot of pressure on his shoulders, but it really was his mother running the whole show at this point, and had been since he became king of Denmark earlier, as little Olaf was only five years old when he became king of Denmark, so Margaret was the one who was really in charge. He would have also felt a bit of dynastic pressure if he knew what that was, as he was by now the only male descendant left of the Bielbo dynasty, a dynasty which had ruled Sweden since 1250, and in reality for a while before that, when Birger Jarl was the power behind the throne but not actually the king. Just like with Duke Albert's death, everyone in Sweden would have been relatively relieved when Björnson Grip died in 1383. This also came at a sad but potentially helpful time for the king, as in the space of a year, his two brothers died. Yeah, there was so much death in episode 63, the one where everyone died, that we felt like we had to spread out some of the news of these deaths and mention them now instead, especially with these two minor figures who we've not really mentioned too much, but it's kind of they're now kind of more important now that they're dead. And they were Dukes Henry and Magnus, King Albert's brother, who died in 1383 and 1384 respectively. And this crucially meant that Mecklenburg was now ruled by King Albert, who was also King of Sweden, and his nephew, the son of Duke Henry, Albert IV of Mecklenburg, who, yeah, they named Albert, of course. Too many Alberts. It's like with the Ingeboys. Spread the names around a bit. We briefly mentioned this 20-year-old duke in episode 63, as when Valdemar died, the Germans wanted to make him the king of Denmark, as he was also the grandson of Valdemar, 
being the son of Princess Ingeborg, sister of Margarete, and son of Duke Henry of Mecklenburg. Yeah, there were two grandsons of Valdemar vying for the throne, but because one was the son of a Duke of Mecklenburg, the Danish royalty and nobility didn't want him to be given the throne of Denmark, so they gave it to Margareta's son, even though she was the younger daughter. Yeah, and so Albert didn't become king of Denmark, and by now, in the late 1380s, he's 20 years old and one of the two Dukes of Mecklenburgs, along with his uncle. This meant that things were looking quite rosy for Margareta as she ruled the two kingdoms in her son's name, but also began eyeing up the Swedish kingdom too. But then, disaster struck. It did, because that was when King Olaf, the very last of the Bielbo dynasty, died. And that was where we left off last time, as this hammer blow came down on the Scandinavian kingdoms, and everybody started scrambling around to figure out what they were going to do next. Olaf was described in the Annals of Skorna as of nobler blood than any contemporary king because of the ancient blood of his lineage and his royal origin on both the sword line and the distaff side, so his uh, father's side and his mother's side. So he was naturally quite a loss both to the kingdoms and also sort of to history and his family's legacy. And this was such a loss that some people actually refused to believe <laughs> it. Those in Iceland said... King Olaf disappeared. The Danes said that he died, but the Norwegians would not believe it. So, yeah. Well, oh, it's both funny and sad, not wanting to believe his death. And, of course, rumours started to circulate. There's sort of only one person left in the fray, and that is Duke Albert IV of Mecklenburg, King Albert's nephew. This is the only person left with any Danish royal blood in his veins, or the only man left, we should say, and he is also the grandson of King Valdemar, just like the dead Olof was. Indeed, as Albert found out about this high-profile death, the young Duke of Mecklenburg started styling himself as the heir to Denmark. He changed his family seal to include the Danish coat of arms and stated that he was now King of Denmark and Duke of Mecklenburg. But being a member of the family ruling rival Sweden and Mecklenburg, this wasn't something that the Danish nobles really wanted to consider. Yeah, and he's saying, making all these proclamations from Mecklenburg, he's not doing it in Copenhagen or anything, so it doesn't really have too much validity. And it didn't take these Danish noblemen too long to consider things. Some, but certainly not all, Danish noblemen plus political and religious figures gathered in Lund in Skorna on the 10th of August 1387, and they elected Margareta, almighty lady and husband and guardian for the whole kingdom of Denmark. Now, that is a grand title, but notably not queen. These knights and other important folks said that they had chosen, accepted and appointed the Honourable Princess and Mistress Margarete, Queen of Norway and Sweden, to be our almighty lady and husband and guardian for the whole kingdom of Denmark, in all respects as it is described hereafter. So that seems pretty decisive and conclusive. She is essentially all but queen. 
Yes, and uh, I read quite a lot of stuff that goes into quite a lot of detail about these titles and about how she's called the husband, which is a you know a male role uh, over the kingdom. So that's sort of saying that she is essentially the queen and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff to read into. But yes, she's essentially the queen. She's the regent and the governor now of uh, of Denmark. But when this was all being decided, there was a key part of the process that wasn't actually followed according to Danish law. This election or proclamation wasn't done by the royal council and then backed up by the Danish landsting or the parliament. Instead, it was a random collection of citizens and peasants calling themselves the Danish people, with only a few members of the royal council present, and certainly not enough for it to be valid in pre-Margareta Denmark. And this was such a change from the norm that the Norwegian history professor, who was also actually foreign minister during the start of the Second World War, by the way, Halvdan Kolt, called this a coup d'etat outside law and without precedent. I mean, I have to agree with uh, good old Halvdan. It does seem to be a bit of a rapid power grab. Now, the Bishop of Aarhus was there, plus the Dots of Denmark, leading politician Henning Podebusk, giving it some sense of legitimacy, but this rapidity definitely seems to have been a way to head off the claim of Duke Albert IV down in Mecklenburg, rather than a spontaneous display of love for Margareta. It's more like, oh no, sorry, don't need a king, we've uh, got this lady instead, she's great. I mean, when I've read about this and how Margaret as a, as a woman became the person ruling, you know, the cynical side of me kind of want to see it as all these Danish noblemen looking at how things were and going, on balance, we'll rather have the lassie than the German. Yeah, and probably hoping that they could control her as well. Yeah. I mean, after all, Denmark isn't in the fashion of appointing queens, so you would have imagined that the elevation of a woman to the guardian of the kingdom would normally have, sadly, been much more of a bigger deal. As we'll see later, Margareta herself inspires great loyalty from the leading men of the kingdom, so there is also probably some of this going into play, They want their woman on the throne, not some unknown German duke. Yes, because Margareta is anything but unknown. She's been around in the kingdom for a long time and her father trusted her and she has good relations with a lot of these people in the council. So it's perhaps actually, yeah, it's more on the side of uh, she might actually be the best choice rather than just stopping Germans. But that's also a good side effect as well of appointing her. But they were still willing to throw the rules out of the window if it was a way to stop their enemies of Mecklenburg claiming the throne and keeping a friendly ally in power. Vivian Etting points to this unprecedented nature of appointing a woman as ruler. Whilst we've seen strong-willed and politically powerful women on both sides of the Urusan Strait up till now, they've never really been given any official power as a guardian. Sometimes they've been a regent and looking after the kingdom for a year whilst their son is a baby, but she's actually being appointed as the official guardian and ruler of the kingdom. But this uh, crazy way of just appointing her without really going to the parliament and using the royal council... It didn't seem to put off the rest of the country, as less than two weeks later, the election was actually finally confirmed by the Landsting in Ringstead. 
It did take a bit while longer for a proper election ceremony to take place in the Cathedral of Udense later uh, in October that year, but it, it did happen eventually. Now it seems more official, at least. Although, of course, I'm sure the Landsting didn't have much of a say in the matter, what with the major political figures of the time supporting this kind of coup. We'll head back in time in a moment to see why these political figures were so keen to support Margarete and how capable she was in her previous role as regent, as this certainly has a part to play in the swiftness of her being accepted in this groundbreaking position. She was accepted in her other realms too. One of the guests at the ceremonies in Denmark was the Archbishop of Norway. He then hurried back to his country and told the royal council there all about the election of Margareta and recommended they follow suit. And that's exactly what they did. Margareta travelled to Oslo at the start of 1388, and at the end of January, the Norwegian Royal Council officially copied the Danish decision. On February 2nd, 1388, Margareta was appointed Mighty Lady and Righteous Husband of Norway. This was actually slightly different to her position in Denmark when it came to the small print, because despite her political power, she's seen as an explicit gap filler or a regent until another king comes along. In Norway, it was confirmed that she should govern the country in all the days of her lives, whilst the council swore obedience to her with men and faithful service as long as she lives. So yeah, the Norwegians like her even more than Denmark, really. Yeah, wow, that's very progressive. Go Norway. That really is a big deal. Such a big deal that they had to change the right of succession in Norway. Because just like in Denmark, Duke Albert was really the only option on the paper. But no, this was cast aside too. In Norway, they used the excuse that Mecklenburg had always fought wars against them, so it wouldn't be fair to appoint their duke as king. And I mean, emotionally, that sounds like a good argument. And one thing that Margareta did have to do in Norway, though, because she was unmarried and was 35 years old at this point, so they thought maybe she wouldn't have uh, another child of her own, they made her appoint a legal successor to her. Choose who is going to come after you. Because if she didn't do it before, then she almost definitely had to then run over to someone and ask them to bring her a family tree, as she ummed and ahed over who to choose or even where to begin looking to find someone who might be able to be her successor. Well, she started her hunt for an heir by looking at her siblings. Her brother Christopher had no children before he died, and he was now dead, her sister Ingeboy had been married to Henry, Duke of Mecklenburg, and there was one son there. But that son was Albert IV of Mecklenburg, so no go on that. Uh, Albert did have three sisters, though, so that would be Margareta's nieces. Unfortunately, the oldest sister there was already a widow with no children. The youngest sister, who was, of course, called Ingeboy, well, she was a nun, so not looking good for the only surviving grandchildren of King Valdemar. But what about the final sister, Maria? Ah, yes. I'd like to think Marietta had to ask her advisor to remind her that the final niece, what was she doing? 
Well, she married Duke Vratislav VII of Pomerania. Of course. Yes, of course. Pomerania, by the way, is a chunk of coastal land south of the Danish island of Bornholm. And if it exists as a proper regional county today, it would be pretty much 50% German and 50% Polish straddling the border down there. Back then, it included the Hansa city of Stralsund, even though that city had quite a lot of independence being part of the Hanseatic League. But that's the sort of area that we're thinking about. So yes, this Maria, the granddaughter of King Valdemar, the only one who sort of maybe might have a chance, is married to this local duke down there, who wasn't really a major international player, but most importantly, they have a son. Yes, Margareta found someone, a five-year-old great-grandson of King Valdemar. This young boy is her own great-nephew. I mean... It's far out on the branches of the family tree, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right? No, certainly not, especially when the only other option is a Duke of Mecklenburg, who is also the uncle of this young boy, but yeah, let's just gloss over that fact. Yeah, this young boy is called Bugoslav, and unfortunately receives a bit of bullying in the Nordic countries because of his name, which is not nice at all. If he's going to be named as Margareta's heir in Norway, they insist he changes his name. So Bugislav becomes Eric. I mean, that would be so confusing. He's five years old and some adults just come up to him and go, Hey, little Bugislav. I bet they call him Boogie. Hey, Boogie, you're now called Eric and we're going to move you to Norway. Like, that's going to take some therapy down the line for him to get over being essentially kidnapped by his great aunt and had his name changed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, we're not saying Bugoslav correct, though. I'm yeah. sure it's uh, Bugoslav or And something. he d- uh, probably definitely wasn't nicknamed Boogie. Yeah. <laughs> you never know, but yes. He's now Eric anyway, because... Because of his bullying great-aunt, Margarita. But we'll catch up with this young boy later on in the podcast. But um, for now, it's just a great idea for Margareta to make things a little bit more stable up in Norway and with the Norwegian nobility. But now it's time to head over the sea to Sweden. If we remember from episode 63, that episode ended with the death of Bujonsson Grip. And this meant that King Albert was suddenly feeling like he had a chance to seize back some political power in the country. Bujonsson Grip had all of this power both politically and financially and had a lot of control over the physical parts of the country that were important. He ran a lot of the important castles and had all these grand estates that he'd collected over decades of influence. And so now King Albert wants to try and grab some of those castles and land back that were part of Bujonsson Grip's estate. And so in the summer of 1387, the king ordered the executors of Bujons and Grip's estate to come to a meeting in Stockholm. These men were all powerful individuals themselves, and some of them were members of the council. The king wanted to challenge their claim to these lands and make them prove that they indeed had the right to take over these valuable estates. Albert probably felt a bit like when I tried to celebrate my birthday in Colombia one year. The invitation said, arrive at nine, 
But Albert, like me at my birthday, stood there ready to welcome his guests at the allotted time. When nobody had showed up a few hours later, King Albert couldn't blame relaxed South American timekeeping like I could. It was just because nobody wanted to attend. Yeah, because uh, your friends arrived just a few hours later. Exactly, and I should have known that. And uh, they just arrived a, a few hours later, which is perfectly normal. But yes, the executors of Bill Jonsson Greep's estate didn't turn up. No doubt fuming at this lack of respect, Albert had to try something different. He forced Bill Jonsson Greep's widow to choose him as her guardian in order to claim the legacy and tried to tax noble property. The final straw was when he demanded these castles and properties back that he felt had wrongly been taken from the crown. Uh-oh, and uh, understandably, these nobles don't just want to give the king political and economic power that he actually hasn't had until this point, and so they turned to outright revolt. They said, no, if you want these castles, you're going to have to come and get them. But crucially, they didn't actually have much military power themselves, so they needed to get some help, and they turned to Margareta, asking for her assistance in removing Albert from power. Now, seeing the writing on the wall, Albert himself, who doesn't really have an army, had to flee to Mecklenburg and go to see his nephew in order to raise an army to come back to Sweden and defend his kingdom. So this is sort of two people who want to fight, but they don't actually have anything to fight <laughs> with. So it's like, let's meet back in six months when we both have an army, okay? Right, bye. <laughs> Just a few months after Bill Jonsson Gape's death, Everything that was holding the fragile political situation in Sweden together has collapsed like a house of cards. The king is a fugitive from his own country, gathering a foreign army to defend himself as a bunch of unruly nobles, who aren't supremely powerful themselves, try to revolt against him. I mean, these unruly nobles, they're lacking in power to such an extent that they have to ask the neighbouring Queen of Denmark and Norway for assistance. We know that Margareta has all the pedigree to be seen as a competent and reliable choice in these matters. She was called Queen of Norway and Sweden due to her marriage to King Håkon, and had shown a lot of political savviness during her 11 years as regent of Denmark, looking after the kingdom whilst her son Olaf was too young to rule, plus seven years of doing the same for him in Norway. But who were these Swedish noblemen really turning their attention towards to ask for help? What were her political motivations and what were her strengths? And who did she turn to for advice and how politically savvy was she in reality? Well, it isn't a big spoiler to say that Margaret is going to be a big player in the years to come. We feel it's now the right time to jump back a decade or so and look at Margaret's time in charge of Denmark as regent for her son Olof, as this can really shine a light on her character and how she approaches challenges and problems. So, if you forgive us, let's turn the dial back a few years to about 1375, when her father, King Valdemar, dies. 
So yes, Valdemar is dead. After a few months of delay and deliberation, whilst they're trying to not give the kingdom to the Duke of Mecklenburg, the Danehof, like the Danish medieval parliament, proclaimed Valdemar's five-year-old grandson Olaf king the next year in 1376. They decided that Margareta would act as regent for her son as he's just a child at this point. Now, Margareta quickly sets about running the country to the best of her ability. Her husband, Horkon, king of Norway, seems to have let her be and certainly doesn't seem to try and muscle his way in and run Denmark now that their son is the king of this country. He leaves this all to Margareta. A supremely important person at this time in Denmark and a key person in ensuring that Ulof was chosen as king was the Danish drots Henning Pudebusk. As we've mentioned a few times, the Drots, or Drost, as it's called in Denmark, is a role sometimes called Lord High Steward in English. Uh, the Drots was the supreme state official, a bit like a medieval version of a prime minister or president, but of course subservient to the monarch. Henning Pudebusk had served as Drots in Denmark for the last six years of Valdemar's reign, and was actually born into a German family. He first met the Danish king in 1350 and was taken into his service, quickly becoming one of the most important and loyal advisors to the Danish king. He played a key role in various peace treaties that we've covered in the podcast, including the peace treaty with the Hansa in 1370 at Stralsund. And this was the one that gave most of the Skorna cities and castles to the Hansa for a 15-year period as compensation for all the damage that had been done during various wars across Scandinavia. And being unwaveringly loyal to Valdemar, Henning continued this loyalty towards Olaf and to Margareta, and he's said to have given tremendous support to the young queen. Another person to put their power behind Olaf at this early time and Margareta was the Gelka, or Governor of Skorna. This was a man called Tu Gelan, and he was seen as one of the first people to support the election of Olaf compared to the Duke of Mecklenburg, but in his case, this might have been more to secure his own position rather than down to any personal loyalty, because we'll uh, catch up with him in a bit. Now, it is with these two powerful and influential figures in the council that Margareta, at the time 23 years old, stepped into the political sphere which she would come to dominate for many years to come. After securing her son's position on the throne, she sets one major goal for her administration, if we can call it that, and that is the return of Skåne to Danish control earlier than the Treaty of Stralsund stated. To do this, she would scheme and plot with master diplomat and strategist Dots Henning Pudebusk, using all means at their disposal to try and bring about this outcome. When they looked at the situation across the Hanseatic League, they probably thought this was the perfect time to try and do something about this pesky treaty. Some could be forgiven for thinking that the League was actually in chaos internally at this point. 
Unrest was spreading throughout the towns as various groups of traders, craftsmen and peasants in all the various locations tried to gain more influence for themselves. Nowhere was this more notable than in Braunschweig, where in April 1374, the craftsmen rose up against the council in the Grusschista, the Great Riot. And it was just so great that the Detmar Chronicle from Lübeck says that it was as if the devil has been released in the city. During the Grosser Schista, ten city councillors were executed in public, with the others fleeing, shocked at the violence that they'd seen. They escaped and begged the other Hansa towns to stop the violence, and the League had to intervene in the eternal domestic affairs of an individual city for the first time, really, at this scale. Yeah, I mean, this really doesn't sound like a stable institution right now. In fact, Braunschweig was excluded from the League for six years, up until 1380. Unrest soon spread to Lübeck, Hamburg and Danzig, among other cities, but it wasn't quite as bad there. So it's in this context that Margareta feels she has a chance to steal back the Skeona towns. She desperately wants these back, as the conditions, if we look back at the treaty, were very harsh. The Hansa towns would receive two-thirds of the income from the Öresund fortresses of Skanör, Falsterbu, Helsingborg and Malmö for the next 15 years, and they were allowed to administrate these fortresses themselves for security. They would also get all the income from the great herring markets in the county. This was huge and meant a, a large part of the kingdom's income was being siphoned off, so it isn't really a surprise that Margareta wants to act. And with Henning Pudebusk, she sets in motion a number of plans. The first was to fiddle with the rules that were agreed upon in the treaty and cheat the merchants out of their various economic privileges. Sometimes this would be really blatant and out in the open, and sometimes they'd just play dumb and stupid. One of the intriguing parts of the Treaty of Stralsund was that Drox Henning himself was actually given control of the royal castles in Skorna as long as he would promise that he would rule on behalf of the Hansa and accept all their decisions. He would follow the Hansa instructions, but it didn't take too long for problems to start coming about. As the majority of the Hansa wealth was moved on the seas, this was where they put their focus. Now, sailing was a much more dangerous thing back in the 1300s, as we've seen with, for example, King Magnus's death in a shipwreck. One of the first provocations Denmark commits is after a shipwreck in September 1377. A Hansa Kog, one of those large cargo vessels, got stranded in the waters outside Helsingborg in Skåne. It was actually possible to save a lot of the cargo, including barrels of oil and about a hundred lengths of woolen cloth from Flanders. These were taken to the nearest place, Helsingborg Castle, and when representatives from the Hansa arrived at the castle to claim back their goods, Henning Puderborsk said that he wanted half of it as a finder's fee, so to speak. This case dragged on for ages before he finally accepted he was only going to keep just one tenth. And this was what the normal practice in such situations was, but it's an example of them sort of trying to bend the rules and annoy the Hansa slowly and surely with some of these economic rules and regulations. 
However, the Hansa weren't too happy to learn that he'd also secretly salvaged 532 lengths of cloth on another occasion. And when confronted by the Hansa, he claimed to know nothing about this. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that is quite a bold move to just go, I have no idea. I have seen no cloth. This case runs on for a long time. In fact, it wasn't settled by the time the Drotz dies, and that won't happen for a while. The Hansa get quite fed up with Henning and Margareta's bending or snapping of the rules, and in 1378 they remove the Skåne castles from his possession and give them to the town councillors of Stralsund. It was said that they had lost confidence in his loyalty, which, I mean, is probably an understatement. Yeah, I, I can see why they did this. Um, but another reason why the Hans were increasingly annoyed at Denmark was the fact that there were hundreds of pirates now roaming the Ugrasen Straits, targeting Hans' shipping that seemed to have appeared from almost nowhere. The key accusation here is that at best, Margareta was turning a blind eye to these pirates, but at worst, she was personally funding and directing them, taking in all the profits from their aggressions. If this was the case, the idea was that being so profitable, the Scorner territories, they were also actually very expensive to maintain and run. If trade was disrupted enough and profits stolen by the pirates, the Hansa might come to realise that it wasn't actually worth keeping all of these castles. It was so much hassle that they might as well return them to Denmark because if they're not making any profit from them, it's just going to be they're just going to be spending their money on running all these expensive castles. Yeah, but it seems like a bold plan if Margareta was indeed involved in it. If the Hansa suspected things before, by 1380 they were pretty convinced. Another Hansa ship was captured by pirates by Helsingør, uh, just on the other side of the sea to Helsingborg. The League claimed that the goods were taken away to the Danish castle at Vanbay, where they were, quote, distributed in the presence of the Queen, and she kept the main part of the cloth. Well, that's a pretty damning claim, and just making the claim itself is pretty explosive. So if Margareta was directing these pirates, it seems to be quite a bold act of foreign policy. They're literally pirating and then taking the stuff and giving it to the Queen. I mean, this kind of doesn't seem to be a red herring to me. That seems to be pretty, pretty conclusive. And the pirates were getting to be such a big problem that the Hansa were really taking this seriously. It was so serious that they raised a fleet of so-called peace ships to go out and hunt for the pirates. And to cover the costs of these new vessels, they had to raise a new duty or tax on every ship leaving Hansa ports. And 1% of their cargo had to now be paid in customs duties to fund this new fleet. For a commercial business focused on profits and attracting more and more trade to your ports, you wouldn't impose a new tax on your captains just for fun. So this shows you that the pirate situation was extremely dire for the League. Unfortunately for the Hansa, the pirates always seemed to be able to slip away in the Danish waters, and suspicion grew and grew when it came to Margareta's involvement even if there was a lack of hard evidence. Yeah, it might just be a coincidence that the pirates just give all their cloth to Margareta at one of her castles. Uh, it's just, um, okay, yeah, well, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt on this time. 
But overall, the plan seems to be working, if it isn't is a plan. At the same time, Margareta is subtly increasing her grip on the political power in Denmark. Her mask, the leader of the royal army, died also in 1380. But instead of replacing him with a commander of the whole army, she simply left the post open, and she would go forward hiring and appointing various commanders for the army for various expeditions or exercises, but not appointing one permanent commander. And more often than not, she used foreigners rather than Danes. So she's, uh, yeah, she's trying to dilute a lot of this power. And the same tactic happened at some point in the early 1380s. We're not entirely sure exactly when this happened, so we'll just mention it now. And that was when the governor of Skorna, we mentioned earlier, Tu Garlan, began to ally himself, at least subtly in the shadows, with the House of Mecklenburg. And they were still insisting that Olaf be deposed and the rightful king of Denmark, Duke Albert IV of Mecklenburg, be placed on the Danish throne. Margareta was obviously not going to accept any Danish politician showing sympathy for Mecklenburg, and so the governor was immediately dismissed as these rumours came to light. Just like the mask, no successor was appointed. Margareta would keep the power and influence for herself. It's quite a clever tactic here, really in both situations. Someone dies, in normal circumstances, nobody's bumped off or has an accident or defects to the enemy, they simply disappear, and that power is subsumed into the crown when nobody replaces them. So it's a, a bloodless coup in some ways, and also nobody's going to argue against sacking the governor of Skorna when he's saying he's starting to believe in the Mecklenburg course. Yes, it's quite clever. It shows you that Margarete is willing to play the long game and do things slowly and carefully, just like how her father had reclaimed Denmark from the German counts when king. She isn't afraid of using any opportunity to her advantage either. When her husband Håkon, king of Norway, died in 1380, the Hansa once again came knocking. Like with every new monarch, they are expecting to negotiate privileges in the kingdom for their traders and gain economic advantages. However, Margareta wasn't having any of this. She said that, now that the king was dead, the privileges were dead too. That's cold. However, Margareta's long game and her public displays of ignorance or obstinance when it came to the pirates and the Hansa would eventually have to come to an end. The kingdom needed to try to make a public gesture of support against the pirates and help the Hansa out. The circumstantial evidence was just piling up. So an agreement was worked out with the pirates to start a ceasefire and for them to stop their activities. What is quite hilarious and quite damning for Margareta is that the list of the pirates agreeing to stop their activities is a bit suspicious. The list includes a close advisor to Margareta, another advisor who was the queen's governor of one of her castles, and two noblemen from Skorna. So these are very important Danish politicians who are named as being the pirates in this ceasefire agreement. Oh, that's quite bold. As Chris says, these are key figures in the Danish government signing on the public record and admitting they were pirates targeting Hansa shipping. Yeah, so this is quite a bombshell and the, the Hansa are quite annoyed. 
not all of the pirates were Danish, of course. Uh, some were just getting on for the ride. But enough were for this to become quite embarrassing for Margareta. This treaty wasn't really enough, though, as some piracy continued after this date, and the Hansa were clearly not interested in giving back the Scorner castles early. Uh, they were going to stick to the treaty and the time frame, so Margareta now needed to take even a few more steps in combating the pirates. After long and fraught discussions with the League, Denmark eventually agreed to provide nine ships and their crew to fight the remaining pirates who hadn't signed the peace treaty. This was a big commitment. Margareta was to fund two of the ships, with Henning Puderbusk providing two as well. Several other councillors and other influential figures funded the rest. Yeah, so they're paying for them themselves out of their own money, or, you know, obviously it's the kingdom's yeah. money as well, but it's not the Danish navy. They're sort of having to raise a special anti-pirate police force themselves. Margareta's change of heart can be explained by a sense of worry that was perhaps starting to creep into her mind and Henning Puderbusk's. The whole reason for the Hansa having control of Scorner in the first place was as compensation for their losses in conflict with Denmark. So what would happen if the Hansa got to 1385 and realised that they hadn't made back any of these losses at all because of all the pirates? Maybe they'd just turn around to Margareta and say, nope, sorry, we're going to refuse to hand back the royal car to Denmark, especially when they've lost their trade privileges in Norway on top of this. Their expenditures, when it came to Scorner and Norway at least, were probably more than their income. So yeah, Margaret is getting worried that if she doesn't do anything to stop the pirates now, the Hansa might not stick to their side of the agreement. Yeah, and this seems to be a genuine worry. So the Danish anti-pirate fleet set sail. At the same time though, Ulof, who's still alive at this point, Margarete and Henning all write separate letters to the League, warning them of the consequences should they not return the Danish castles on schedule. Henning said that he hoped they would reflect on the agreement, quote, for the sake of their good reputation, which they had from old times and still enjoyed, and which hopefully would not be lost now over such a small thing as the return of the castles. I like that line, such a small thing, <laughs> like the return of the castles, as if it's not been dictating Danish foreign policy for the last 10 years. You can tell this was such a big deal for Margareta as she doesn't even bother waiting for a reply for these letters, and instead she goes with another bold roll of the dice. It's now that the Danish Royal Council embark en masse to Lund over in Skorna, with King Olaf and Margareta at the head. They hold a mass in the cathedral on Trinity Sunday, and then head to the local parliament of Skorna, where Olaf swore to preserve the peace and rule the county according to the local laws. The next Sunday, representatives from all regions of Skåne swore oaths of allegiance to the king Olof, cementing Danish control in the region. Now what would the Hansa do? Margareta has marched into Skåne and taken control over everything except the castles in the Hansa's possession. Any attempt to remove them by force was going to cause a costly war, and they had already lost a lot by this point. Any trade would be destroyed, and hope of for recouping their losses would be low. 
So Margaret is utterly called them out, daring them to stop her. She's just is approaching the time to return the castles in 1385. So she just goes over and says, okay, I'm here waiting. The king has already taken the oaths of allegiance. All we need now is for you to give back the castles. Everyone now really wants a peaceful solution, and so it didn't take too long before representatives from the League arrived in Helsingborg and handed back all the castles to Margareta on time, as the treaty had stated. Victory! Yeah, wow, she did it! A bloodless, if you don't count the piracy at least, victory! This is a masterful political success by Henning Pudebusk and Margarete. The Detmar Chronicle in Lübeck agrees, saying this she accomplished with great skill. I think it's been a really successful political campaign, just using everything at her disposal. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And to keep up appearances, the Danes kept their anti-pirate fleet at sea for another month or so after the return of Scorner. But then a strange thing happened, because the pirates suddenly and oddly just disappeared. Oh, who saw that coming? Yeah, I know, right? I mean, very strange. A final peace treaty was finally signed with the remaining pirate leaders in 1386, and the sea became peaceful. So that's a, another victory for Margareta, I guess, if you can call it that. A victory in a problem that she created and controlled. Unfortunately, Margareta and Henning Pudebusk didn't have too long to celebrate together, as 1387 was a sad year. King Olaf died in that year, and so we return to the start of this episode when we heard about how a few members of the Danish council, led by ever-loyal Henning Budebusk, declared Margarete to be the rightful ruler of Denmark, despite her only son and heir's death. This act of proclaiming Margareta the legitimate husband and guardian of Denmark appears to be Henning's last great political act. After 22 years as Drotz, he dies, and this happens at some point between Margareta taking control in 1387 and October of 1388, when his wife is mentioned as being a widow in the sources. He definitely was a major player in the Danish events leading up to Margareta taking control of the country. We don't want to take too much credit away from Margareta herself, because she was just as responsible for this success. Yeah, we've seen how calculating, bold, and manipulative Margareta can be, but it seems to be in a very focused way. She doesn't seem to be power-hungry per se, or erratic. On the contrary, she seems very logical and strategic, and crucially, she has a lot of loyal followers. Henrik Pudebusk had great power as a drots, but he was never removed or sidelined and never plotted against the queen. If we've seen one thing in the past hundred years or so, it is that noblemen and royal sons love trying to take power for themselves. You would think that having a woman on the throne is perhaps the only reason that everyone could agree on for some powerful man to come and take power at this time, due to the widespread belief that women should not hold position of power. So many other men in Henning's position would have arranged an accident, started a coup, or raised an army to remove Margareta. The fact that he doesn't is a great sign that Margareta was such a good leader and inspired loyalty in the great men of the kingdom. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because Henning was so powerful, but she was able to rule during this period alongside people who had a lot of power, both on paper and in reality. However, when Henning dies, she probably does realise this, that the position of Drotz has gained a lot of influence over the last couple of decades, and her loyal Drotz did have a lot of power concentrated in his office that a fellow Drotz in the future might use against her. And so, just to be safe, Margareta falls back on her favourite trick. The position of Drotz just drops off the table, and nobody replaces Henning Poulterbusk after he passes away. I mean, ever-pragmatic Margareta. So anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this mini-biography or study of Margareta's political life. We've seen how she quickly secured the loyalty of the kingdom's finest politicians and leaders after her father's death and made sure her son was declared king. She tried her hardest to bring Skewana back to Denmark through all sorts of cunning and political means, Whilst she failed to bring them back earlier, she made life hell for the Hansa and made sure that when push came to shove, the castles were returned as planned. Yes, and she's just getting started. As we heard at the start of the episode, she then made sure she was declared the rightful guardian and ruler of both Denmark and Norway, and made sure that the Norwegian council accepted her choice of her great-nephew Eric as her heir. And she was so strong politically and now militarily that Swedish noblemen then turned to her for help, as they embarked on their quest to depose King Albert after Bouillonsen Greep's death. So lots of death, lots of scheming and political power plays, and Margareta is at the heart of it all. Yeah, we'll see how she goes and what happens in the next episode. We can only wait and see. As we did mention at the start, there's another family tree out for this episode, so check that out on a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can also find our Swedish phrases of the week, sourced lists, maps, episode pictures, uh, loads of stuff. It's a treasure trove of content. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter, or email using flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Someone who did get in touch on Facebook this time, who uh, actually wrote a review a while back, so uh, nice to hear from him again, was uh, James. And he got in touch to introduce baby Elsa, uh, whose name was inspired a little bit by a uh, anglicised version of Orsa and also by James's recent discovery of some uh, Danish and Swedish DNA through Ancestry. So we'd love to say hello and welcome to probably our youngest listener, um, assuming that she's hearing some of it in the background whilst her dad uh, gets on with his day-to-day work. But um, we just like to say hello, congratulations, and uh, yeah, best wishes to everybody involved in new baby Elsa's arrival to the world. Yes, welcome to the world, baby Elsa. And that's all for us for now. We'll see you next time. Hey, doll. Goodbye.